You're listening to Sound Opinions, and later in the show, we'll talk about Taylor Swift's two 2020 albums and her status on the pop stratosphere. We'll also review the latest album from singer-songwriter Jasmine Sullivan. But first, some obituaries. That is Be My Baby by The Ronettes, produced by Phil Spector, uh, one of a string of classic singles that uh, Spector produced, arranged in many ways, wrote some of them uh, in the uh, late 50s through the mid-60s, dominated that era of popular music. Uh, everybody knows by now Spector died at the age of 81 on January 16th of uh, COVID complications. Uh, it would be remiss of us not to mention that uh, he was one of the greatest producers of all time and also the man who murdered Lana Clarkson in 2003, the same day that they met. Uh, Lana Clarkson is gone now. Phil Spector is as well. Complicated legacy doesn't even begin no. to uh, explain what this man's life was like. Troubling. Um, there was a, a guy here who... Uh, clearly had psychological problems all through his life, was enabled by people around him, the music industry, uh, to continue what was described charmingly as erratic behavior early on. Like shooting a gun off next to John Lennon's ear. Right. You know, or threatening the Ramones. Exactly. And I mean, what we have here is a guy who clearly had problems for a long, long time. And uh, Lana Clarkson paid the ultimate price when he went completely off the rail. So uh, Spector spent the last years of his life in prison. He was uh, accused of murder. He was found guilty of murder. He ended up going to prison. He ended up dying a very lonely death. And at the same time, the work, the music. I wanted to pay tribute not so much to Phil Spector, as talented as he was in the studio, but to the people who helped him make those records, uh, specifically three women. You know, when we talk about the Renettes, we uh, talk about uh, Ronnie Spector, his second wife, who was abused by Phil yeah. Spector. And, and Ronnie Spector, in a sense, I don't know if forgiveness is the right word, but she came to terms with him uh, at the end of his life. Right, Jim? A startling quote. Unfortunately, Phil was not able to live and function outside the recording studio. Darkness set in. Many lives were damaged but I still smile whenever I hear the music we made together and always will. The music will be forever. You know, if she could come to terms with that, separating mm -hmm. the art from the artist, this is a man who installed a gold coffin with a glass top in the basement and told her he'd kill her and put her corpse there if she ever left him. But damn, that wall of sound, three words you haven't mentioned yet. What was Spectre famous for in the studio? Double and triple tracking the bass and every other instrument and the orchestra and making that undeniable wall of sound that Ronnie Spectre clearly loved and so did millions of others. Absolutely. 
absolutely. I mean, uh, you know, the idea of this wall of sound that, you know, bringing an orchestra into the studio, uh, you know, he talked about these little symphonies for the kids. Yeah. He was the guy, I think, singularly responsible in many ways of, of turning pop music of that day, you know, rock and roll, soul, doo-wop into an art form. Yeah. Uh, you know, there was before Spectre and after Spectre in terms of how you produced a record. He was the guy that introduced the idea of the producer as an artist in his or her own right. So, so Ronnie Spector, one of the women, uh, Lana Clarkson, p- paid the ultimate price. Who else were you thinking of? Well, I think Darlene Love is another name that I would like to highlight because Darlene, she was ghosted in many ways. She was the voice behind many of those Spectre-produced hits in the 60s and never was credited on many of them. You know, she was known as the Crystals or Bobby Sox and the right. Blue Jeans. <laughs> yeah. Invented and those songs groups. were charting. And here, Darlene Love was a lifelong background singer. She was yeah. used to being kind of treated as part of the furniture in the studio. You know, they uh, like session you were, player. You were a session musician. You did. You came in and you sang your, your part and you left. But finally... Spectre did recognize her genius and put her name on a couple of records, notably Christmas, Baby, Please Come Home, Yeah, you know, which in many ways helped Darlene Love sustain her career long after Spectre was no longer relevant. Uh, you know, you remember Letterman having yeah. uh, Darlene come every, on every, every year. year to sing that song <laughs> because it has become part of the fabric of Christmas now. I, I don't think a, there's a greater pop uh, Christmas know, song ever. No, you have a Christmas hit, and you're set for life. <laughs> Please welcome the one and only Darlene Love. She had a long career, and she continues to, uh, Darlene Love. And finally, Tina Turner. And I got a chance to talk to Tina years ago about her experience with Phil Spector. She was the lead vocal on River Deep Mountain High, probably the last significant recording that Spector made during that incredible run from the late 50s into the mid-60s. Spector, in fact, was disappointed that this record didn't uh, chart higher. He ended up uh, killing his record label after that. Uh, But Tina said... She'd been working with her husband, Ike Turner, up until that point. And she said, most people knew me as a dancer. They didn't respect me at all. They, you know, she screams, she shouts, she dances, you know. She's not really an artist. She's not really a singer. And Spectre looked at her and said, no, I want you to sing the song. I want you to sing the melody. I don't mm. want you to scream it. And she was like, I can't believe he's taking me seriously as a singer. And it was a great moment in her life, she said. She said, you know, whatever you can say about Phil Spector, he respected me as a singer, as an artist. And in a way, I never looked back from that moment in terms of how I viewed myself. So uh, in, in, in tribute to Tina Turner, one of the women who in many ways surpassed the life of Phil Spector in terms of how they not only survived him, but were able to create great art in collaboration with him. Here is Tina Turner singing the lead vocal on Phil Spector's River Deep, Mountain High on Sound Opinions. I was a little girl, I had a brag
River Deep, Mountain High. Tina Turner on lead vocals, the Phil Spector wall of sound. Spector is dead at the age of 81. Oh, Greg, it is cruel to play just a little snippet of one of the greatest songs in rock history, Trash, by the New York Dolls. That was written uh, in part by Sylvain Sylvain, the rhythm guitarist of the New York Dolls, who died at the age of 69 on January 13th. The uh, New York Dolls, ground zero in many ways, according to many people who should know, like the great rock historian Lenny Kay, Mm -hmm. uh, for punk rock. You know, it starts with them, that blend of glam and uh, pop and old school R&B and rock and roll revved up to a new tempo. Uh, Johnny Thunders, the lead guitarist, tended to get a lot of the spotlight. And of course, David Johansson, one of the greatest voices in rock history. But a la your fondness for Mal. Malcolm Young of ACDC. The rhythm guitarist uh, in a band like the Dolls or ACDC can't be underestimated. you got to have a glue guy in your band, you and that's what Syl was for the glue. Dolls. Oh, he was that, and plus he was so much more. What a fascinating life. I'm telling you, this should be a biopic. Uh, Sylvain Sylvain Mizrahi is born in Cairo. His father's an international banker, a Sephardic Jew from Turkey. His mother is of Syrian descent. They have to flee Egypt because of the Suez Canal crisis. They wind up in France, right? Um, He winds up being multilingual, French and and Middle Eastern dialects. Uh, David Johansson made a joke that his good friend, Syl, could uh, give you malapropisms in about five or six different (laughs) languages. He was a party guy. He was a spirit. He was the guy who named the New York Dolls. And he uh, was the one who came up with the idea of if we raid... Uh, our parents' closets for the the fashions that they've discarded. <laughs> you know, mom's old cocktail dress, dad's top hat. <laughs> we might have a new look. Uh, you know, he didn't write a lot of songs, but he, he co-wrote some of the most memorable. Uh, Frankenstein, also for the Dolls, was another one of his. And he stayed with Johansson when David Johansson began his solo career. I think uh, after the Dolls canon, only two albums, too much too soon was the second indeed it was mm-hmm. they imploded famously uh stayed with johansson wrote frenchette mm-hmm. for johansson and boy is that a great song right. i should play that as a desert island jukebox or just play it like a little bit in every show mm-hmm. it's a great <laughs> epic song um Sylvain was around for the second round uh, when the Dolls reunited not long ago. Uh, It wasn't really impressive, but seeing him on stage uh, with David Johansson at South by Southwest, I remember, was a really memorable night for me. I'd seen him play with Johansson solo, too. Uh, You know, a great talent, a real force of life, dead at the age of 69 after a battle with cancer. Here's a little bit of Frenchette. Call that loving French, but it's just French. I've been to France, so let's just dance. I get all the love I need in a luncheonette, in just one glance, so let's just dance. 
Frenchette, a song that the great Sil Sylvain wrote for his buddy David Johansson. Sylvain is dead at the age of 69. Johansson now the only surviving doll, I believe, Greg. Yeah, he is. You know when you lost one. Go when you know when you lost one. Go out of different people to cope and ignore our precautions. Drink and you drink and get faded You feel like this your only option uh, 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 That's a little bit of Lost One from the new Jasmine Sullivan album, Hotels. That's H-E-A-U-X, Jim. Hotels. Uh, oh, of course. Fourth studio album from this Philadelphia artist. Uh, she broke through in her late teens as a songwriter with uh, Say I in 2006, a top 40 hit. And then uh, launched her career with another single called Need You Bad that anchored her 2008 debut, uh, Fearless. Um, That was a top 10 album. Seven Grammy nominations, including Best R&B Album and Best New Artist. Continued to make Grammy-nominated, chart-action-level records. Love Me Back and Reality Show 2010-2015. Takes her time between records, as you can see. Also a songwriter and featured vocalist. She's much in demand. People like Monica and PJ Morton have had her uh, on their records. Mary Uh, J. Blige. Indeed. And now she has her fourth album. It's, uh, again, Hotels. Here's a track from it. Uh, The the record includes guest shots from uh, Ari Lennox, Anderson Pock, and her. But the star of the show is Jasmine Sullivan. Here's a track from Hotels. It's called Pick Up Your Feelings on Sound Opinions. You said that I've been acting different, yeah Funny how I finally flipped the script on ya yeah. When you the one who's double dipping, yeah You so sloppy how I caught you slipping, uh You're off the lease Run me my keys No more popping up the hitty, yeah I ain't even got the miles to trip on ya yeah. No phone Who is this? Brand new Like the whip Rack it up No assist Maybe nine average Wake up Need a zip Hennessy Take a sip jeans i'm too thick i ain't got no home for extra baggage don't forget to come and pick up your feelings don't leave no pieces you need to hurry and pick up your feelings while i'm up cleaning boy please i don't need it memories all the shoes you can keep it Forget to come and pick up your feelings. Don't leave no pieces. Pick up your feelings from the new Jasmine Sullivan record, Hotels, H E A U X. Um, Greg, it's hard to determine whether this is an album or an EP. There are six 
spoken word interludes. I'm going to get off my chest my problem with this record right <laughs> off the top, okay? I hate spoken word interludes. <laughs> I hate the poems. I hate the, the skits that many rappers do. Um, you know, they do contextualize what Sullivan saw as a concept album, yeah. right? How uh, black women uh, deal with being sexual beings and own their sexuality while being uh, confronted with all sorts of media uh, images of what that should be and also toxic masculinity, mm. which runs rampant, right? Um, after the first time I heard those spoken word interludes, uh, some of which come from family members giving her advice, mm. not all of it good, um, you know, I was like, okay, I don't need to hear these anymore. We can make our own uh, playlist and cut them out, uh, but but it's just, you know, I don't need them when the tracks are great and I want to get to the songs, and the songs tell the story, I think, uh, plenty powerfully without uh, a set them up with these spoken word pieces. These are songs about uh, exactly what I said. At one point, she says uh, of a woman's sexuality, not the phrase she uses, uh, uh, they keep telling you, you tell uh, the men in your life that it belongs to them, but it belongs to us. Our society teaches them to be so wrapped up in themselves and their own conquest that they forget we're sexual beings as well. This is about owning yourself, your sexuality, your place in the world, your power. A great record that is tuneful and soulful and sexy and angry and also introspective about uh, uh, being a black woman in 2021. Uh, and, and her voice is so powerful and her songwriting is even better. The arrangements are, uh, you know, vaguely in the neo-soul area, mm. uh, but, but not retro whatsoever. I mean, it's just a wonderful wonderful set of new music that i wish was edited yeah <laughs> she made this record at home which is a pretty common tale for uh record yeah, making in 2020 yeah. and it has that intimacy that may, her previous records were a little more lushly produced let's put it this that way this is a little more minimalist a little more stripped down so there's a lot more emphasis on you know the, the songs and the hooks and they're there she's a really really strong songwriter combined with a just an incredibly versatile voice. It's a powerful yeah. voice, but she's also able to convey intimacy and vulnerability and, you know, kind of a bedroom whisper at times. There's, there's uh, shades to that voice that well, it, indicate that this is a very seasoned uh, vocalist. It's spirituality. Yeah. You know, it comes from the church. Absolutely. And, you know, the song cycle, uh, you know, that it is, I mean, you mentioned the interludes, which, to a degree, it's like, okay, she's, it's like a little storybook, you know? And you're right. You don't really necessarily need to hear the interludes. But I think if you're a young woman, you're listening to this, you're going, this is kind of the story of our life here, you know? She's, she's, she's talking to her, her fellow comrades in this uh, relationship era that we're living in. And looking at relationships from multiple angles, she's singing about desire, but also about the motivation for entering relationship. Sometimes those reasons aren't all pure. No, you know, no, she's no, a, and acknowledging that. I front. want him to have money. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and why can't I get the guy with money? You know. Yeah, I got dreams to buy expensive things, and I know that he's out there. So as my kind of like these kind of things that you know you go through when you're figuring out who you want to spend your life with and then the consequences 
of giving yourself over to another person for those reasons, you know? Yeah. So she's exploring it from all angles. And it's a, it's a slight record. It's only like, a, you know, a little over 30 minutes long. It could rightly be called an EP. Yeah, but she's packing a lot in here, you know? And yeah. Jasmine Sullivan needs to make more records more often because she's a really, she's just a terrific artist. I agree. Now let's turn it over to our listeners, Jim. Do you have thoughts on Jasmine Sullivan's new album, Phil Spector or Sylvain Sylvain? Leave us a voice message on our website, soundopinions.org, and let us know what you think. Coming up, we discuss Taylor Swift's two 2020 albums, Folklore and Evermore. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And this week, we'll be diving into a discussion on Taylor Swift's two huge 2020 album releases. So, uh, Greg, uh, one of the artists who had the most impact, uh, you could say the most impact of 2020, uh, we never got around to talking about last year, and now we are going to right that wrong. Taylor Swift in 2020 released not one, but two of the biggest albums of the year, and uh, we have got a great, great critic from Chicago to help us look at why Taylor Swift mattered, what she was up to in 2020, her place in the pop firmament, uh, Kristen Stolke of the Chicago Hayes blog. Kristen, uh, you are a fine critic and fearless, I might say, given that the legions of Taylor Swift fans will come after people who make the <laughs> slightest criticism. Uh, and you are a fan, obviously, but you are a, a, a real critic in, in dealing with her music, the pros and the cons. For sure. Yeah, I feel like for me specifically, I was always a fan first, but as she's gotten bigger and her fandom has just evolved into this intense stan, I felt like I still wanted to be a little <laughs> bit critical. And I feel like for me, to be a fan means you have to be critical of them. You know, first we got Folklore, uh, her eighth studio album. And if my wishes came true, it would have been you. My defense, I have none for never leaving well enough alone. But it would have been fun if you would have been the one. And then, uh, five months later, uh, almost at the very end of the year, we got Evermore. Life was a willow and it bent right to your wind. They count me out time and time again. Folklore and Evermore, those titles are linked. Um, tell us about how she released them. Sure. Kristen. So with Folklore specifically, it was just very sporadic. You wake up at 7 a.m. and she's posting this full Instagram grid. She was, I think she was kind of blacked out for a while on pause, not really posting anything. And all of a sudden, I'm getting all these text messages coming through saying, is she releasing an album? I can't believe she's doing this. It's a surprise release. And specifically, as a Taylor Swift fan, you know how much work and effort she puts into promote albums. So it was a total shock to the system. And with 
Evermore, she kind of did the same thing in terms of doing this Instagram grid and saying, surprise, here, here's my album. Um, what was really shocking is that we didn't see this coming. Like specifically as Taylor fans, you would think someone who is so focused on her songwriting and constantly working on things that we should have known that she was going to be doing this. So it's, it's kind of weird to look back and not known that it was coming. And there was, was uh, I think part of it too was that, uh, you know, the, the sound shifted so radically. Uh, and yet, uh, we're still talking about two of the best-selling albums of the year. I mean, in only a couple of weeks, she sold 283,000 copies of uh, Evermore, the, the one that came out in, in December, and the one that came out a few months before that, biggest-selling record of the year, 1.3 million. Um, she, it seems like a juggernaut to the point where you feel like she could put out anything and it would still sell. Um, so does that give her more or less freedom to do whatever she wants? That's a really good question. I mean, as a fan, I feel like that gives her more freedom because I know she has 10 years worth of fans behind her that are going to support her. But I do kind of feel like when she's looking at it from her perspective, I think she's very critical of herself and the way that she wants to release music. And she is very specific on selling albums and getting Grammys. So I do feel like it should give her more freedom, but I don't know if she gives that freedom to herself. And I do think that being in quarantine and being in lockdown and not being able to promote her albums that she has the way she has in the past really kind of allowed herself to just go ahead and accept that that was the freedom in front of her. It seems to me like, you know, she's, it's, it's hard to believe, but I, you know, her first record came out in what, 2006, right? So she's been like, you know, part of the firmament for 15 years. And, you know, at, at a certain point you go, the star begins to lose its shine and it, you know, people move on. She seems to have weathered every potential, you know, storm. Um, and, and if anything, become more popular through the, through the years. Yeah, you know, starting out in country, making a move toward pop, working with pop super producer Max Martin, and now on Folklore and Evermore, uh, taking a turn toward, uh, not to, to put her in a box, uh, sort of indie introspection, uh, chamber pop at times, uh, working with uh, Aaron Dessner and uh, The National, so let's talk about the music. Uh, it's interesting. There, there are, in addition to that sort of bony bear sitting alone in the cabin sort of uh, uh, mode. I think I've seen this film before, and I didn't like the ending. I'm not sure problem anymore. So who am I offending now? You are my crown. Now I'm in exile, seeing you. She also at times is bringing in things from left field, like industrial drums that wouldn't sound out of place on a Trent Reznor record. And at the same time, something like Dorothea is as perfect a pure pop song as that genre has ever produced. Shiny friends since you left town A tiny screen's the only place I 
I mean, that is just a great, catchy song. Let me quote Kristen Stalkey. While many of Swift's biggest hits and her worst musical mistakes have been inspired by her massive celebrity, it's refreshing to see her explore songwriting in a way that is not so heavily tied to the fact that she is the biggest pop star in the world. Uh, Yes, I think at times uh, you are absolutely right. It has been solipsistic. How many people can relate to being, oh, woe is me, the pop superstar, right? So what are you talking about? What is she doing different? And why did that turn you off, the Taylor singing about Taylor? I know you guys spoke on reputation on a previous episode of Sound Opinions, and I just don't care about listening to her whine about drama with Kanye West. <laughs> I just It was just so overdone on reputation. Like, it wasn't overdone on reputation, but the, but the time she got to reputation, I just was so over it. This is why we can't have nice. And I feel like with Folklore and Evermore, she took a step back and was writing through this fictional lens and created these characters and, you know, these fictional places and events. And I think that's where she shines the most when she's been able to get to a point in her career when she needs to take a step back from that autobiographical lyrics. And just I think she's become a lot more self-aware and accepting of her place as a musician and a songwriter. Yeah, it's interesting that she made this introspective kind of record, um, introspective in terms of its sound. But as you said, it's more about storytelling rather than, you know, Taylor, you know, diary entries about, you know, I'm mad at this person or, you know, this person done me wrong, which a lot of people rebelled against. A lot of her fans kind of like reputation was not the her finest moment in that regard. You know, the the New York Times review quoted that line, though, from We Are Never Getting Back Together, that 2012 hit, where she said, you would hide away and find your peace of mind with some indie record that's much cooler than mine. And you would hide away and find your peace of mind with some indie record that's much cooler than mine. (laughs) And now she's made her indie record. What do you make of that? I think it just goes to show that she has outgrown the narrative that she was pushing, especially in the song like that, because part of me is like, I'm sure when she was releasing Red, she was listening to those albums. And I'm assuming at that point in her life, she was just kind of over the idea that people were looking a little bit more more negatively towards pop music. Um, And that may not be true. It may be true. I don't know. But I think now she's gotten to a point where she isn't able to look back and be like, that wasn't one of my best lyrical moments. Um, But I do feel like there are some of those moments on this album and with Lover. So I don't know if she's ever going to really be able to outgrow that. That might be like one of her flaws. I think it was an honest lyric, though. I I think the one thing about her that fans liked is that she was transparent she was kind of wearing it on her sleeve and she felt that at the time so but she's come around and you know to me it's a sign of you know I'm evolving I'm changing I have the right to change I have the right to like realize hey I can I can accept this and now I want to make a record like that too um so maybe a sign of strength just as much as like oh I'm repudiating my past um What's your sense of this record? Because I think a lot of fans, A, were taken aback by how 
quickly it came out, suddenly, in contrast to previous Taylor records, as you were saying, but also the, the radical shift, sound-wise, sonically, and, and lyrically. Sure. I feel like it did come out quick, but that's kind of just a side effect of the times we're living in. I feel like she had to really take a look at the way that she was marketing and promoting her albums in the past and realize that that wasn't going to happen in this climate and during a pandemic. And I think that was the right step for her. I think if she tried to do the same thing she had done in the past, it wouldn't have come out the way that she had hoped. Um, And in terms of the way that the album sounds, I wasn't really that surprised she went this direction, specifically because I feel like this is a little bit more reminiscent of her earlier stuff. And a lot of fans always wonder, like, is she going to make the album where she just decides she doesn't care about the way that it's received? And I don't know if it's necessarily at that point yet, but I think that that is the direction that she's most likely going to take. You know, it, it's it's clearly she still does think about how what she does is perceived. Uh, Andrew Gill, one of our producers, pointed me to the Netflix uh, film, you know, where she is sitting there agonizing over whether she's going to come out on social media uh, about her political views, you know. And, uh, and the team is telling her, no, 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 don't alienate a single buying customer, you know. <laughs> Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so, so, so she thinks about the burdens of being a pop star. You have another review on your site right now, Chicago Hayes. Great, great critical blog. Wonderful Thank you. Thank um, you so much. Of the new Miley Cyrus record, right? So Miley is quite clearly telling us, I don't give a blank what anybody thinks of anything I do. Uh, Taylor could use a smidge more of that, No. Absolutely. That's I've had like a weird relationship with Miley Cyrus and her public persona in the past, but I would much rather prefer her just not caring. And she kind of goes into that in the documentary that you mentioned that she grew up in this this bubble thinking that she had to be perceived a certain way to achieve everything that she ever wanted. And I don't know if she'll ever fully be able to grow out of that. I don't know. Oh, the the, the stands are going to come for you, Kristen, <laughs> if you're saying that. <laughs> Yeah. Let, let's talk let's talk about <laughs> Nobody No Crime. To me, it's one of the most interesting songs on the record. Dorothy is my favorite. Nobody No Crime is uh, a man has done the character in the song wrong and she's murdered him. And she's gonna get away with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. There's something about dad taught her how to get a boat license and she knows how to drive the boat. Okay. Um, Look, you know, the Dixie Chicks got there first on Earl, as you point out in your review. But what was interesting to you about that song? That's the storytelling you're talking about. For sure. Yeah, I feel like that song goes back to her obvious country roots and what the comparison you just made it's so similar to goodbye earl by the dixie chicks mm-hmm. it also kind of sounds like before he cheats by carrie underwood and oh, good good one yeah yeah and referencing dorothea as well those are i feel like there's some glimpses of her kind of thinking about going back into like the country Roots, I'm not quite sure if that's something she would actually do in the future. I think it would be interesting to see, 
you know, the comparison between when she was 18 and when she's 32. Mm -hmm. Um, But overall, I do feel like that song can, like, I think down the line, people will, like, look at that song and be like, that's one of the defining songs. It's the one that got me thinking, you know, if this artist matures and she follows her own path and doesn't let the pop machine mess with her anymore, you know, she she's going to be the Dolly Parton of a generation. Mm-hmm. Do you think I agree. That that's a fair comparison? I do, but I'm worried. Like, I love her. I don't say any critiques because I think negatively of her, but I worry that she'll get in her own way before she ever reaches that. Why? Just because you see the way that she's handled her, you know, pu- being in the public eye in the past and being so critical and worried and concerned about the way that she is perceived and the way that her music is perceived. I hope she grows out of that. And I think she could with the way that folk- folklore and Evermore came out. But when it's so deeply ingrained in who she is and, you know, how she came up through the music industry, I don't know if she'll ever get there. And, and you know, and you're saying, though, it may not be in her makeup, which is which is fascinating to hear. I mean, she's been doing this more than half her life, right? And it's kind of part of her DNA that she's just like, I got to be every, all things to all people. Because I actually think that, that ruined Michael Jackson. You know, um, Michael Jackson was in whatever you think about all the other ugly stuff that came out about him, post-mortem especially. But um, he, he paid attention to the charts and always being the top artist. And that sort of... That's the worst thing Steered him off the passive creativity. And that's the one thing, you know. But Taylor seems to have been able to sort of negotiate the divide. Like, these albums have gotten the best reviews she's had, right? Don't you think? I mean, you you probably see more of that than we do in terms of just, wow. they, They Not only is she selling records, but critics are universally praising these records, too, it seems like. Uh, Yeah, and I I feel like she wouldn't have ever gone this way if it wasn't for the fact that she was locked inside her house and had nothing to do then (laughs) other than just write music. It's it's not a dig. It's just like the reality of the situation, you know, like if she was planning, like if she was touring, like she thought she would be this year or in last year, I don't think she would have ever created something like this. When we come back, we'll talk about Taylor Swift's collaboration with the Nationals' Aaron Desner and the return to her country roots. That's in a minute on Sound Opinions. Welcome back to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRogatis. And this week, we're talking about the 2020 albums Folklore and Evermore by Taylor Swift. Let's get back to our conversation with pop music critic for Chicago Hayes, Kristen Stalky. Let me ask you some tough questions, uh, and I will tell you my own opinion. Uh, Folklore and Evermore, I think, would have been better as one album, do you think? Because there's parts, especially on Folklore, which came out first, that are really kind of sleepy. That's interesting, because I feel like Folklore is stronger than Evermore. I oh, would, okay. I would rather see... I would have liked to see her do like a B-side for Folklore and done maybe... 10 songs off of Evermore and just put it on the B-side. Because obviously ah. as a fan, I will take any music you will give me, but I it's hard for me to say I think Evermore is as strong. Maybe it's just because I haven't had much time to sit with it, but it's hard to me. It's hard for me to think of it uh, anything other than an afterthought. Mm. Hmm. Okay, I think it's the casualness of Evermore that 
appeals to me. The more casual. You know, I'd like to hear her recording live on the floor of Third Man Records, you know, either in Nashville or Detroit, you know, but that's me. I, I think everybody ought to record that way. And there's still some, do you, do you think that there are still, uh, I do, still parts that are way too overproduced where the slickness interferes with me enjoying the music? Would you agree? I would agree with that. I feel like there are moments when the songs would have held up better just based on the lyricism alone. Yeah. Um, it's, But I do feel like I prefer this production over reputation, but that just might be personal preference. Yeah, well, it is more stripped down than that. Uh, you know, but still, there's just... Man, there's times where where just take the polish off. <laughs> mm-hmm. I, yeah, and I think I think that goes back to her desire to have everything as perfect as it can be. Okay, all right. Mm. What, what do we think of the song Marjorie? If I didn't know better, I think you were still around. What died didn't stay dead. What died didn't stay dead. You're alive. You're alive in my head. I like it. I like that yeah. she. Like I said before, I feel like there was a lot more storytelling on these two albums, but there is there are moments where it's very personal and specifically with that song. And what I found so interesting when I heard that for the first time is I had never really she had never really discussed anything about her grandmother before. So coming into this album, not knowing what to anticipate and then hearing this very personal track about someone she admired growing up was like a breath of fresh air. Mm. Yeah, yeah. What what died didn't stay dead. You're alive. You're you're alive in my head. Um, I love that. You know. I mean, I think the problem that a lot of college uh, students and I have a fair uh, number of uh, creative writing students in my classes. Right? It's like, look, you are not always. I'm really interested in your perspective. I'm interested in everybody's perspectives, but you're not always the only interesting thing to write about. You know. So this is a very personal song, but it's not about her. It's about her grandmother, Marjorie, and and we can. We didn't know Marjorie. Marjorie, just like we don't know Taylor, not really, but we all have had somebody like that in our life uh, who we miss. All right, so what? what's your favorite? If you had to choose one from the double, you know, because there's a lot of parents, a lot of older people listening to Sound Opinions, and also probably some younger people, given how long uh, Taylor's been a- around, who are skeptical, but they've never invested the time. And Greg and I, this was one of our New Year's resolutions. We're going to dive deep into these two albums and deal with Taylor as a cultural force. But what, you know, where would you send somebody from this latest batch of where she's at to say, listen to this, really listen to this? I would have to say Mirrorball off of Folklore. Um, To me, that song is one of the most personal songs off of the two. And it really, Taylor really stripped it back and wrote like, I always try very, very hard to succeed. Like, and I try to make it come off effortlessly, but I'm always, you know, changing to appeal to the people in front of me. And For me, that was like the most introspective moment for her in a long time. Yeah, but universal. 
in the and sense it's universal. that that, that, that plenty, you know, there's not a, a, a anybody in high school who doesn't feel like I'm always trying to to live up to expectations. Right? right? We can all relate to that. Can't necessarily relate to uh, uh, the champagne, you know, <laughs> that she sings about in another song. Right? right exactly. <laughs> what about Aaron Dessner? Does he get too much credit or not enough for the direction of these records? That's really tricky. I don't know. I feel like there is a little bit more. I don't want to bash him, but I feel like she could have come to the same conclusion with these albums if it was someone else. But that doesn't mean his work isn't well made. Does that make sense? Like what really for me holds up for these two albums is her ability to write stories. So Mm -hmm. I don't that's hard. Because I feel just, like she could achieve something, you know, like successful with other producers. No doubt. And I was going to ask you that that's kind of corollary question. Uh, you know, she's gone from like Max Martin style pop uh, to Jack Antonoff, who is kind of bridging the gap between, you know, rock and pop maybe. And now, you know, Aaron Dessner, who is like, you know, godhead in the, you know, indie rock community. Um it's almost like she's producer proof in some ways. I mean, she uses producers to help her get a certain sound that's in her head, maybe. Um, I, I'm just curious about the relationship. How, how important are these collaborations to how the al- album ultimately sounds, in your opinion? Okay. Um, personally, I think the best work that she's done post Red has been with Jack Antonoff. Um, I feel like the way that they just make music together is the way that she sounds the best and the music she does is the best with him. Um, So yeah, that's really my answer. I do feel like when she was working with Max Martin, she was achieving like such pop mainstream success that she may never really get ever again, even if she were to collaborate with Max Martin again. Um, So it's tricky. I would be curious to see if she has the ability to like produce something by herself and see what that would, what that would do. But Interesting idea. And I, I always thought that sort of that one-to-one relationship between a producer and artist was always the best thing. Like, you know, find that one, you know, make a record with Questlove or something like that, you know, uh, something like that. And and not so much to have that person put their thumbprint on it, but just sort of have this genuine collaborative approach. And I guess that takes you out of the realm of making a pop record and now you're making a, a record for yourself. Um do you, do you think that's achievable for her? Or do you think that she wants to still cover all the bases? Because even on these records, like Evermore, she was still sort of, you could start to see she was already getting restless. And, you know, there's there's a bunch of songs here that cover a broader spectrum than the ones on Folklore, for example. You know, it's more of a pop record in some ways. Yeah. I mean, to answer your question, I don't know if there's ever a future where she'll just make music for herself. I think hmm. part of her s- success and this could be a negative and a positive, is that she writes, I would think, like, besides the outliers on Reputation, I think she's able to write for the masses and make music for the masses. So maybe when she's, you know, 50, 60, she'll just write, like, create an (laughs) album that she's not concerned about where it's going to go and what it's going to achieve. I would hope so. I would, I would so. like to hear. I would like to hear Miley Cyrus produce Taylor Swift and Taylor Swift produce Miley yeah. Cyrus. Okay. You know, I would love to see Taylor get away from these uh, male Svengali's. I totally. Yeah. There's. She did a lot of uh, songwriting work with Liz Rose in her like Nashville days, and I would really yeah. like to see her get back with Liz Rose. 
Yeah. You know, uh, one of the things I love about Chicago Hayes, Kristen, your blog, is uh, we will get a Taylor Swift review. We will get a Miley Cyrus review. We will get a Phoebe Bridgers review. Um, You know, I think, and tell me if I'm wrong, Taylor Swift is like going to be the last of a breed. There are never going to be pop superstars because the pop factory is being disassembled as we speak of this level of, you know, 30 million streams in an hour. People staying up, you know, till at midnight for the first song to, you know, none of that's ever it's gone. And good riddance to it because it allows for, for you know, I mean, if if Taylor was on the level of Phoebe Bridgers, I think she'd be a more interesting artist. And that sounds like what you've been telling us. I agree. And like you said, we've written reviews about Phoebe Bridgers and her album was one of my favorites of 2020. Punisher was incredible. And I part of me does think and maybe I'm giving Taylor too much credit with these two albums that she was kind of going down that route because there were some songs and lyrical content that I think like a Phoebe Bridgers fan would find interesting on these albums. And like I said, she is self-aware and I would hope that she's aware of these other artists, you know, coming up and becoming a lot very successful. So I would hope that she's listening to them, getting inspired by them. And I know Phoebe Bridgers is a Taylor Swift fan, so I would hope that the roles would be reversed in that too. Well, we're going to get you back on the show, Kristen Stolke. I would love that. You are a, a perceptive uh, pop music critic, and you're always welcome on yes, Sound indeed. Opinions. Thank you so much. I was really excited to do this. It was really fun. Greg, I certainly feel better informed about Taylor Swift now. Mm-hmm. What do we have on the show next week? Next week, Jim, we are going to have an in-depth conversation with director Alex Winter on his marvelous documentary about Frank Zappa. For more Sound Opinions, listen to our podcast wherever you find such things. The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in this program belong solely to Sound Opinions and not necessarily to Columbia College Chicago or our sponsors. And speaking of sponsors, every week our show reaches hundreds of thousands of curious listeners from around the globe via podcast and on 150 public radio stations nationwide. If you'd like to learn more on how your business or organization can also reach this engaged and educated audience, you can email sponsor at soundopinions.org. That's sponsor at soundopinions.org. Thanks, as always, to our Patreon supporters. Sound Opinions was produced by Andrew Gill and Alex Claiborne.